Welcome to episode 70. Today, the highly renowned Dr. John Huddy joins us to talk about collective teacher efficacy. Welcome to the Teaching Multilingual Learners podcast. This podcast celebrates teachers who answer the calling to serve multilingual students and their families. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. Every cloud has. The next few months, I'll be hosting a series on teacher collaboration. We'll look at co-planning, co-teaching, co-assessing, and co-reflecting. I'll have experts that you'll recognize in the field, such as Dr. Andrea Hongensfeld, Dr. Maria G. Dove, Dr. Jim Knight, and Anne Benegan. I'll also be featuring co-teaching partnerships to show you how differently they can look. I'll also be on just by myself to share strategies with you. I'll even have my co-teacher on to share what it took for us to turn around our relationship. Since collaborating is now so essential to our role as language specialists, I hope this series supports you and offers some guidance to you on your journey. John Hattie says that almost everything we do enhances students' learning. However, the impact on those things vary. When John updated his meta-analysis, he identified a new list of highly effective factors. At the top of that list is teacher collective efficacy. Collective teacher efficacy is a shared belief that teachers' actions impact student achievement. This requires three things, time, data, and evaluative thinking. Through this process, they do realize that there are things that they can do as a team that can significantly impact student learning. Collective teacher efficacy helps teachers realize that teacher actions can overcome barriers that inhibit achievement. That's why I've decided to start this series on teacher collaboration with collective teacher efficacy, because it requires a whole community to believe that we can make an impact on students' learning. We can and we must work as a team. Because one of my sayings is, when teachers can't play nice, students pay their greatest price. Now, on to today's podcast. Today with us is John Hattie, Dr. John Hattie. It is like having the Oprah of educational research being on your podcast. I am so honored. This is above my weight level. I'm so honored that you've come to talk to us. You know, I first met you, well, I didn't first meet you, but your organization, Visible Learning, came to my school in Laos several years ago, in 2014-15, you came twice. And when you shared your data analysis, when, the, when your presenter shared the data analysis, you had me right there. 
in teacher teacher clarity, in student student teacher relationship, on student self reported grades, on scaffolding, on discussion, and then a few years later, you came out with your new analysis, and it came out with collective teacher efficacy. Everything stopped, and I was like, yes. Yes, this makes so much sense. It's particularly for teachers who work with English learners. It's so important because this is what we do now. So I won't steal the thunder from you from talking about it, but would you introduce yourself and your work to the listeners, please? Sure. Thank you very much, Tan. It's wonderful to speak to you and you and Ho Chi Minh City and here. I am in Melbourne today. And it is that excitement of talking about what I truly love and obviously what you love too, and that is how we can maximize that impact we can have on students. What we mean by that notion of impact would surely is a lot more than just improving their achievement, but turning them on to the love and, and joy of learning. And it is doing that in a way that's based on evidence. It's getting past the anecdotes. It's changing the debate from how we teach to how we have an impact from our teaching. And certainly what keeps me going, and I have a hunch the same as you, is as I travel around the world, in your part of the world, in many parts of the world, I'm just stunned by the amount of excellence that we have in it. And I don't understand why we don't acknowledge that ex excellence and upscale. Whereas so often we do the opposite. We look for failure and we ask for ways to remediate. But we're a pretty impressive profession that uh, we shouldn't deny our expertise because there's plenty around. That's, I'm, I'm on a, also another, um, my school is also doing positive education. And one of the things that they're talking about is uh, focusing on what's right. Yes. Right. And we focus on, and you, you just talked about, why do we try to remediate teachers? They're experts. They really know no. what they're doing. And that's your approach. It's focusing on it. And it's very similar to the approach of working with language learners. In the past, we've we've approached language learners with saying they can't do things they can't do, sure. things they uh, won't, we won't, shouldn't be able to ask them, things we shouldn't be expecting of their parents. But you but can't is a red is a red light. We can't go with a can't. Right. But when we focus on what teachers can do and when we focus on putting teachers together and realizing that they're experts that they're really in the classes figuring things out. That's where the power comes from. And so I really appreciate you talking about that. How did you come but up with that, this? Go ahead. But it's that strength space that you're talking about that yes. matters. But I'm, but I'm no Pollyanna here. Like I'm at the wonderful stage of my life where I have grandchildren and my, I've been watching my four-year-old's been living with me for a while recently. And she's so excited about learning. She's so excited about going to school. Like the world's her oyster. And I know that 95% plus of kids at age five really want to engage in this thing called schooling and learning. But sadly, by the end of primary school, elementary school, start of high school, it dips to around 35 to 40%. Yes. Um, that, 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 I just look at her and think, oh my gosh, in five years time, you may have lost this love. Yes. And it's what you're saying, it's how you take what they bring to school at age five, that joy for learning, that just absolute wonder and sense of, what's out there and how we can capitalize on it. And, and you're right, that applies to English second language students. You know, the fact that they're second language means that they must have an incredible amount of assets. Most of us struggle with a second language, but here they come with a second language. And uh, yes, we have to teach probably code switching at times and the skills to be taught, but that 
resilience that many of them have. But then, as you know, too, some of them come like any kid, quite battered, and school's a haven. What a wonderful place to be. Oh, you're melting all the hearts of teachers of language learners right now. I hope you know that. Uh, the thousands of teachers around the world right now, they're saying, yes, he understands us. He understands our kids. And so thank you for saying that. We, we, When you said the word asset, that's like a word for us in our community of like, hey, these kids have assets. Their parents have assets. Their community has assets. How do we bring, bring them in and build on and we utilize that and stay, instead of saying, let's subtract what they bring we're gonna add, take it and add to what we can, can the instruction that we have with them. Would you uh, just back up and talk about your meta-analysis for those who are uh, unfamiliar with it, about, with it? Sure, like in the typical world that I live in in academia, what we do is we do a particular study and we look at, for example, an impact on an English as a, uh, a learner of a new language and we conclude whatever we want to conclude from it, and sometimes we then write it up and publish it. And then along comes a next group of people who says, well, I'm going to review all the literature out there on English language learning. And so they go out and they find 30, 40, or 50 articles, and they write a review based on how they interpret that. Now, some have argued that some of that interpretation could be quite biased, and that we throw away the studies we don't like, or we find criticisms of them, and we keep the ones we like. And so in 1976, along came Gene Glass and he said, no, there's another way of doing it, and that is we can systematically quantify how large the impact is from doing a study on kids. And we can then ask, what are the key influences of that overall impact? It doesn't make a difference if you're 5 or 15, whether you're struggling, whether you're gifted, whether you're from mm. Ho Chi Minh City or whether you're from Melbourne. Mm. And that what invented this thing called meta-analysis, and now there's at least 1,600 of them in education. And my role was to sit on top of that. So I took those now 1,600 meta-analyses and systematized those through the same kind of methodology as meta-analysis. And that was, quite frankly, was the relatively easy part. The hard part was interpreting it and make sense of it. And so that's what I've been doing for the last many years, trying to make sense of what truly makes a difference in the lives of kids compared to pretty ordinary stuff. Like one of the things that you discover is that almost everything we do enhances kids. Yes. And so arguing that you can enhance a kid is kind of trivial, but at least surprise, surprise, half, because it's the average, half the people who are above the average, which is 0.4 in my analysis, which is quite an impressive um, impact that we have on kids, we're driven by probably 50, 60% of the teachers and schools in the world are in teaching in classes where their kids make more than a year's progress for a year's input. And that's pretty remarkable. Yes. And that's the excellence that I want to understand, capture, esteem, and smell the roses. You, that's why. That's what you mean by uh, know thy impact. Well, yes, because ten, when I first published the book 10 years ago, um, I included at the end in the appendix uh, a ranking of all the meta-analyses, and that led to some people looking at the top things saying, oh, we're going to do those, and looking at the bottom things saying, no, we're not going to do those, and that really wasn't my message. Oops. My message was, here's a lot of probability statements. Here's a lot of things that have worked in the past, and if you use them, they probably will work, but I want you to actually check that they actually work in your class. Ah. Hence that notion of know your impact, know thy impact. 
I want you to choose high probability intervention. But if you choose a high probability intervention and do it badly, it's not going to have an impact. Yes. And I don't want to be blamed for that. I want to be blamed for you choosing a high probability. And then as we do in our workshops, and you probably see when you uh, the team visited, what actually is the impact in your class with your kids? And what are the benchmarks you use? Are they good enough? How do you know? Do you triangulate? Do you just use test scores? You should also use artifacts of kids' work. You should also use student voice. How do you bring that together? And getting away from the notion that the opinion of the teacher matters. I want the interpretation based on their impact of kids to matter. I think we've spent far too much time debating, talking about how we teach. And I don't really care much how each of you people listening in today are teaching. Mm. I care about the impact of that teaching. Yes. Hence the notion. Know thy impact. What do you mean by it? Yeah. We're, we're really shifting away from um, here. Try this teaching strategy. Try that teaching strategy. Try this approach to really shifting on saying, let's look at the data. What or how are students responding? What is causing students to learn? What are causing students to maybe not learn? And let's focus on those things. And that then shapes, that then goes back and shapes our instruction. It's, and it's kind of, and I know it sounds a bit negative, but it's uh, the argument that the philosopher of sciences make about the progress of science is you look for the evidence you're wrong. And it sounds a bit negative, but that's what I also want you to do. What did not you, what did you teach not so well, as well as what you taught well? Who in the class isn't gaining that? Like I bet in every class in the world, there's four or five kids that are going to achieve marvelously, even despite what we do. Yes. Just using them as evidence that we're a good teacher is not good enough. And so it's how many of the kids are we impacting? And then the third part, besides what and who, is how much? Is it good enough? Because I would want you to bring along a piece of student's work at the beginning and say three months later, and let's have a debate about whether we can see three months growth in that learning. Those are the kind of discussions and debates we need to have to help understand what is the impact we're having on kids' learning. Because I'm so I'm currently writing a, a book with two other authors about uh, rethinking professional learning, and oh, yeah, and one of the one of the key findings that I consistently find during my research is that teachers are talking too much about uh, the instruction; they're not talking about student learning, and that's in professional learning communities. Uh, yes. Dufour talks about we need to shift away from that. That's a set, you're, he's paralleling what you're saying. We need to shift away from in professional learning communities, talking about try this strategy, do this strategy. It's focusing on getting students work together and saying, are they learning and, and how much, how, to what degree are they learning and what is causing them to learn? And so that's a conversation we need to be grounded in. And certainly like you, I'm writing a book at the moment with colleagues and we're are looking at not so much professional learning, we're looking at the essence of being a, 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 of a teacher and a school leader. And you're right, it's, it's not what we do. You know, that, that's important, but what's more important is how we think. Yes. And one of the things that I am struck with professional learning, like teachers are incredibly generous people. They'll give resources, they'll give best practice. But unfortunately, that often is then not accompanied with how those teachers are making the moment-by-moment -moment decisions in their class. Yes. But the argument we're making is that we need to have a look at how teachers think. And specifically, we're saying teachers who have evaluative thinking is what matters. Those that are critically value evidence, 
those that address the fidelity of their implementation, the, about what, about who, and magnitude, those who investigate their biases, evidence they may be wrong, those that focus or have, are prepared to have discussions on impact, and what are the short, medium, long-term impacts you'd expect, and the hard one, oh my gosh, the first one and the hard one is can they understand other people's points of view? Yeah. And that's a really hard one. Particular, they have to understand it, not only with respect to their students, but other teachers' points of view. Because if they don't, they are closed community and have closed conversations. So we're looking at evaluative thinking and saying like, and what I press you to think of, Tan, in your work is how do you develop that in professional learning? It's, I think, the most critical part. And it's exciting, I think. And so our argument with evaluative thinking is that it's specific ways about how teachers think. And we're looking at five parts to it. Now, can the teachers critically think aloud, interpret and value evidence? Can they address the fidelity of their implementation? And that's going back to looking at what they've taught well, who they've taught well and how much they've taught well. Can they seek evidence that they might be wrong, who they didn't teach well, etc. Can they focus on how, are they prepared to have debates and discussions about what impact means and share that with their colleagues and looking at shorter and medium and longer term impacts. And the fifth one, probably the most toughest of the lot, probably the most critical, can they understand other people's points of view? Not only other people's points of view in terms of the students' points of view about what learning is like in that class, but also other teachers' points of view because that's how you're open to learn and that's how you can make the difference. And my challenge to you and your work in professional learning is how can you develop those skills? Obviously around what you teach, obviously around the precious knowledge, obviously around students and assessment, but at that thinking, that is the hallmark. Those teachers that have high impact and that's what we need to develop in our professional learning. That was so powerful because I was gonna ask you, what does when teachers work together and when they come together collectively, what should they be doing? And you basically laid that out. These are the five things that the teachers yeah. need to, the kind of like the mental moves, the interpersonal moves that need yes. to have. And when, when you, when you pointed on the last part is offer points of view and be okay with that. And that, whew, that can be hard for teachers oh, because cause teaching is deeply um, a personal experience. And when people share their ideas, they can they can feel like they're being attacked or evaluated, and that's so hard. Oh, and also like I noticed the probably the biggest generational change in teachers, like teachers who are 10, 15 years been in the classroom, they have learned to be expert alone. Yes, in their classroom, doors closed, and they can be very good at it. But what I'm noticing, and certainly you can see quite a lot of evidence for the teachers coming into the profession now in their first five or 10 years, they want to be collaborative. They want to work together. They want to deprivatize. And so there's an incredible opportunity now to start to get teachers to think aloud and to have discussions that are about their evaluative thinking. And of course, I want those teachers who have worked in their own classrooms for many years to come out and share that way of thinking. It's not easy, but that's where great professional learning can make it safe, can make it legitimate, and can make it powerful. I, I was thinking of a title for, for this uh, podcast, and you just said come out. And I was thinking, oh, coming out, a teacher's <laughs> working with class. I was like, maybe that not. That requires courage. That requires courage. Yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> it does like to to share your practice with that because you're right when i started uh my practice 13 years ago it was it was how do you work with kids in class but it i didn't have a single course on how to work with other professionals and now specifically when so the podcast that you're on the audience that you're that li uh, listening to you they are working with language learners multilingual multilinguals and their often job their responsibility is to go co-plan with teachers to co-teach co-teach with teachers and that that takes a lot of work that takes a lot of uh, emotional work but also skills of saying oh okay you're the science teacher you you have expertise in science content science processes skills and knowledge and i'm the language teacher or i work with kids helping them acquire language you, we need each other to support each other the science teacher needs uh, me to help figure out what's the best way we can get kids to comprehend the text wow. and i need the science teachers to give the kids a reason to use language and we really yeah. were, were merging um we're merging each other's skill sets and we're really, really balancing it off together. What, how did you, how did you arrive at this, this conclusion and you changed it? Cause we were like, Oh, wow. Um, I, I wish that I knew the magic answer. Um, visible learning was my 10th book. Who, who knows about the previous line? Um, like my background and my whole career has been in measurement and statistics and I'm a, a psychometrician. And so in many senses, I'm a bit of an outsider. And that gave me the chance to look over the fence a bit more dispassionately. And what, what got me going, Tab, was everyone I met in the business, everyone told me exactly what I should do to be great. And it was all different. Mm. And you know, the advice you get, particularly as a new teacher and you get thrown resources and you know, teachers are generous, they keep doing it. And then my academic colleagues, they all knew truth too. And whatever the truth was, was what they were doing. And it just didn't make sense that everything goes. Like I'm flying up to Brisbane tonight. I would be horrified if my pilot said, oh no, I'm going to do it my way. <laughs> there are procedures and rules. You have to work with it. There are things we know that work very well. When I go to my dentist, I don't want them to be creative and autonomous in the sense that teachers argue. And so it, it just seems strange to me that everything works. So. My initial de endeavor was, could I change the question from what works to what works best? And that's what got me going. And I squirreled away for 15, 20 years while I was doing my main job, um, collecting this data and trying to work and understand what happened. And when it all came together, you know, my challenge to any academic out there that's maybe listening is come up with a different explanation. I wish you every success. In fact, not so long ago, I released all the data on a website, a free website, so anyone can collect the data. You don't have to collect the data. It's all there. And so there's a challenge there. But, yeah, it's been – and it's been exciting. It's been really fun. What – so how then with, – with your new research now that – your new, new analysis that collective teacher efficacy is, is an influence that has the greatest uh, effect size, how then – and we talked about the five – uh, mindsets that teachers have, the get, get sets. How do we support this from happening then? Do you envision teacher, collective teacher efficacy as teams of teachers or departments? Well, I do. Unfortunately, it's, it's a bit of an unfortunate title because it gets misunderstood as sort of growth mindset for teachers or rah rah bombier. And, and, and I, <laughs> I use the notion of collective efficacy about impact because. There's a lot of like professional learning communities that are not about impact. 
Yes. And they are starting to disappear and people are getting very um, upset that they're not making the difference because it's got to be about something in the same way that learning has to be about something and teaching has to be about something and impact and teacher collective advocacy. And one of the things that is really critical is that we as systems have to create the time and resources for this to happen. We can't expect teachers to add it to their day job. But yes, teachers working together, planning together, interpreting, evaluating together. Like if you get, you've done this I bet many times in your career, when you get a group of teachers who are critical in a positive way, that's been the biggest advances we make. Yes. We have to build that into our system. Yes. And we have to create time. Like I know now here in Australia, we have, uh, teachers have quite a lot of non-contact time, but unfortunately they often sit in their staff room with their colleagues and work alone. But we have to say, no, we want you to critique. One of the exciting things is I'm spending a lot of my research time in innovative learning environment, classes of 100 students with, say, three teachers working together. Now, those teachers have to work together. They have to plan together. They have to critique together. And it's, it's impressive what happens in those communities when that happens. And so I think we have to um, build that community of collaborators. Now, you go back to what you were saying before, brand new teachers, it's overwhelming. And quite a lot of teachers pull out of our profession after four or five years. Yes. And the most common reason they give is no one supported them. But I put it on its head and say, no, it's the other way around. They never learnt to be collaborative. Mm. And a lot of schools aren't collaborative. But that notion that you're in your classroom by yourself and you have to sink or swim is unforgivable because um, kids are affected by that. And so that notion of how we build a collaborative profession. As I said before, I think it's exciting that this new community, like here in Australia, the average age of starting teacher education is now 25. And so it's a whole different cohort. They want to be part of this collaborative. They've been through the whole social media collaborative. And we do a lot of work here at Australia Context um, in social media. Teachers are huge users of social media. We can build communities. Um, like I, I ran a a social media Twitter event uh, about a month or so ago, and we had over a hundred thousand teachers involved. Are you on Twitter? Yeah, and it was a seven. It was on a seven o'clock on a Tuesday evening. Don't tell me teachers aren't interested. They are. They come and listen to your podcast, Trent. They are interested in these kind of things. How do we use that media to really yes. make a difference? And yes. Like in your community, you you are not always common in school, but you're common throughout the world. That's the community. And as you know, in a lot of your programs, you can get kids talking to kids throughout the world. Yes. I think it's there, but it's not about the social media. It's about that sense of collaboration. Social media can help. Yes. I always tell people when they're like, why are you on Twitter? And I say, I am a better person because of the teachers that I've met on Twitter. Not because of the platforms, not because of the 128 yeah. characters. It's because of the ideas that they give me. And it's about the mindsets that they help me realize. Like with, yes. without... I always tell I always tell this this story when I was working in Laos. There was a seventh grade social studies teacher, and there was a seventh grade student who came from China. And I was ready to pull the kid out of the social studies class and just give him so uh, watered down social studies. But but the teacher said no. He's going to stay in our class. He's going to learn exactly the same thing as everyone else, and we're going to work together to figure out what I can do to help that kid and what you can do to help that kid. And that, that without that conversation, I would still be advocating pulling kids out because they're not quote unquote ready. And 
I have to be a little cautious here, Tan, though, in case anyone looks up my Twitter account. I do have one. I do have 20,000 followers, but I've never tweeted. Um, I do it with others. Can you tell us your Twitter channel, or should we not follow you? Like, what... No, it's no. I, I, I have a, a, a role here with an organization called the Australian Institute for Teaching and School Leaders. It's a government agency, and I do a lot of Twitter work through the AITSL agency. And so if you want to look it up, AITSL, Australian Institute for Teaching and School Leaders, um, and so watch those spaces. Okay, we'll watch that space and we'll we'll, we'll stalk you from via an or, another organization. <laughs> how how can school leaders and districts support collective t- teacher uh, efficacy? Oh wait, let me let me pause back. You said it was uh, misnamed. How would you rename it now? Because it you said, you said the name gave it a people are confused by it now. Or, well, yeah, I, I keep. I would say collective teacher efficacy about impact. Yes. I just want to make sure that it's not collective efficacy about feeling good or about sharing resources or about um, going to each other's classrooms and watching each other teach kind of stuff. Because that doesn't talk about impact. That talks about teaching. So I just want to add about impact. Professional learning communities about impact. Collective teacher efficacy about impact. I want teacher collective efficacy about impact. I want professional learnings about impact. I don't want it about how we teach. I don't want it about resources. I don't want it about best practice. I don't want it about um, talking about going into each other's classes or watch how each other teaches. I want it about the impact of that teaching. So that focus is what I want to add to the title. There's nothing wrong with the title as long as it's about the right stuff. So when you talk about collective teacher efficacy about impact, you would say, what are we doing that is creating impact and what are we doing that's not creating impact yeah and what do we mean by impact right and, and that's a pretty critical one so you're in, in essence you're saying we can't have conversations without data without student work well yes but let's be careful here about student work it's i think we've been obsessed about data and we've forgotten about the interpretation of data yeah and of course to be interpretive you've got to have data but so often tests stop at data, tests stop at numbers, and that misses the whole point of it. And unfortunately, we often think the tests are about the kids, whereas in fact, the tests are the best source of information to interpret about the teachers. And so I'm a bit obsessed about this, particularly given my measurement background, is that we far too often stop at the tests, we stop at the numbers. So I want to hear how the teachers make their interpretations, and then I want to ask them, and so what? Where to next? And that's where evidence makes the difference. I'm a great fan of evidence, but evidence just isn't test. It is artifacts of kids' work. It is student voice. But more importantly, it's how those teachers are making their interpretations. And so, yes, it's why I don't ever use the word formative or summative assessment. I use the words formative and summative evaluation. And it goes back to that notion we were talking about earlier about evaluative thinking. I really want to hear those interpretations. So thank you for asking that. No, oh, thank you. How would you then support teachers? And this is like a mind shift for me. I really appreciate this conversation. But how can you? How can we support principals and teachers and school districts focusing on evaluative thinking? Because you said it's it's not about yes, student data is important. Getting there, looking at their feedback, looking at their work is important. But the more more important thing is looking at your interpretation. How can we refine our interpretation? That's what I'm trying to say. Well, that's where the expertise comes in of school leaders and 
one of the things they have to be very seriously concerned about is creating an environment that's safe, that's fair, that you can actually raise questions about what's not working well, whereas most of our societies and our meetings is always about what's working well. And you know, teachers we know are very, very good at working in the present, what's happening right now. And sometimes you have to help them get out of that present to look back and look forward. But this is where school leaders, the most powerful attribute of a school leader is they can control the narrative in the school. And I want that narrative to be about impact. And if you look at the work of Vivian Robinson and Michael Fullen and those kind of people, they've been trying to move school leaders very much to looking at the nature of impact, uh, looking at how you go about interpreting the school data, classroom observation work, how you can use that to improve um, school learning and the learning of teachers and the learning of kids. It requires school leaders to create that time and those resources to do it. But that focus, 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 plus that notion of um, how do you create that safe and trusting environment. It's very hard in any, in any school to get improvement unless you start with that. But then once you've got that safe environment and once you've built it up, uh, that's, that's when you make sure that that narrative is, is about. How do you help teachers understand that impact, what they mean by it? Um, are you prepared to go out and get the student voiced about what it means to be a learner? In your classes and feed that back to the teachers to see if it's consistent with their view if kids say that learning in this classroom is sitting up straight paying attention to watch the teacher work you know you've got a pretty poverty environment mm -hmm. but if yeah so if students say in this class i learn from my mistakes i get help from my teacher it's safe to ask for help it's okay in front of the other kids to be wrong um then you know you've got a pretty healthy environment so I just wrote down two things. I wrote down systems and culture. Systems meaning like we have to, if we're talking about school leaders, they have to create the system that allows teachers time to sit together, yes. time within yes. their non-contact time, not just doing their prep work for the Correct. next day. It's really, can you sit together in a room to, and that's the second part, the culture, can you create a, a safe space where teachers want to come together to talk about the impact, to interpret the data, to uh, think about, okay, what do we really mean by impact for language learners? And then how are we gonna get there? And then what what makes the greatest impact? Do you know that impact? Well, I don't wanna hold you up anymore because I know you're heading out tonight and you're eating dinner. What are you eating, by the way? The lamb rice I'm cooking for my wife. Oh, that's... She's very kind. You're very kind. <laughs> I can I, can I end the podcast with this? I ended with something called um, traffic light teaching. And a traffic light, there's a stoplight, a red, there's a slowdown, a yellow, and a green is uh, go for this. Always go for this. A green. What are your red lights for teaching, for uh, education? You can go in any order. Okay. Well, the, the red light, I'll start where you started today, is deficit thinking. Uh, thinking that kids can't do things. Um, Graham Nuttall, his work showed that 50% of what's taught in every class the kids know already. Yeah. Uh, the biggest problem with schools is um, it's too easy, not too hard. The other problem with schools is too much doing. I think that teachers think engagement is doing. So those are all my red lights. And so it's, it's not about doing, it's about challenge. It's about making mistakes. I want kids not to not only learn lots, I want them to go deeper at the right stage. 
My orange lights. Um, I think that the biggest orange light is the my worry with the creeping amateurism that's coming into our profession. Like in England now, there are more teaching assistants than there are teachers, oh. and they have a zero. Yeah, and they have a zero to negative impact on the on the students. Uh, but we like them. We think they're okay. We love them. But I do not understand how we are allowing such amateurism to come in. As you know, there's a lot of expertise in what you do, Tan, and I think we need to value that and esteem it. So that's my yellow light. My green light is, we were talking about this before, it's that excellence. How do we get teachers to not deny their expertise? When something truly happens to a kid in your class, it's not because the kid did it. It's not because the parent did it. It's not because of the technology. It's not because of the class size. Tan, it's because of you. <laughs> oh my goodness, my heart just melted again. Thank oh, you. Thank, thank you. And I, I just thank you for the time for being so gracious. But more importantly, even though you didn't really speak about language learners, you did. You, you, oh, even though you didn't talk about English teachers, you did, or language teachers, you did. You're speaking up to them about their practice and why they should be valued. They're experts. They're not paraprofessionals. They have training and they have all this expertise. We need to bring them in. So that is what you're really speaking to in the audience. So thank you for your work. And we are just so blessed and so honored. Thank you. Talk all, to you later. All the best. Bye. Bye. Before we recap this episode, I have a favor and an invitation. My favor is to ask you to please review this podcast if you found it valuable so that teachers like you become inspired and informed in their advocacy work. My invitation is for you to enroll in my scaffolding learning or teacher collaboration courses. I've taken the principles that I've learned from experts in the field. I've applied them to my classes. I kept the things that worked and I'm sharing all of them in these courses. I hope you consider enrolling. Now onto our recap. Dr. John Hattie's opening lines were, turning students on to a love of learning in a way that is based on evidence, getting past the anecdotes to looking at the data and shifting the conversation from how to teach to how we have an impact. Additionally, he said that there is incredible talent and skill in teachers, yet we look at failure and we find ways to remediate them. Instead, we need to focus on what's working and upskill. His structure for impact is looking at what we are doing, who it is affecting, and how much is the person affected by the intervention. Dr. Hattie said that having teams of teachers plan together and evaluate data together has produced the biggest advances in learning. But in order for us to do this, it requires teachers having an evaluative approach to their teaching. This means teachers must meet together and need to evaluate the effect of their instruction on students. Dr. Hattie doesn't want us to talk just about teaching practices, sharing strategies, or doing teacher observations. He wants us to come together to evaluate the degree our impact has on students. Since almost everything we do enhances learning, we must come together to figure out 
what enhances learning the most. For this to occur, we need to have time built into our schedule for teachers to meet regularly. Most importantly, he wants us to think about how teachers are interpreting the data. Finally, though we didn't talk a lot about language specialists in particular in this podcast, I've written a companion article to show how we can foster collective teacher efficacy around language learners. You can find this article in the show notes. In the next episode, we'll have one of the pioneers of teacher collaboration for language learners, Dr. Andrew Hongesfeld, join us to talk about the instructional collaboration cycle. Thank you for listening. I'll see you soon. Be safe and be rooted in peace. It's your turn to play Traffic Light Teaching. Tweet at me either your red, yellow, or green light from this particular episode.